0: My Other Face by Robert P. Fitton Episode 5 Jamie Pendleton is wounded and dying With a blue uncertain stumbling buzz Between the light and me When the windows failed And then I could not see to see Emily Dickinson Jamie's heart raced as he kept pace with the rented car. He was nearing the bridge that spanned the river to the plant road. The textile factories were behind him now, and the lights of the town glowed in the distance. He could still see, however, the ever-moving hands of the clock tower as they closed in on 8 o'clock. To his left, the icy river waves rolled in the moonlight, and he slowed for the turn to the bridge. A wooden security arm had been opened on the far side and he was sure that Minos had the situation well in hand. The plant was visible now, much larger than it appeared from the distance. It scared him half to death, but his revenge was stronger and grew with each passing second. He prayed that something did indeed exist under the hydro portion of the plant, and he knew that such a complex would put his father in a no-win situation. He had decided he would attempt to ruin the existing plant if there was nothing below. But that was all hypothetical, his more vivid fantasy involved telling the world that his father was unleashing awesome power without checking all the ramifications. He would make all his findings public, and his father would be through. Minos had also opened up the inner gates, and all seemed clear as Jamie drove up the asphalt road. Up ahead, the parking lot was surrounded by a high chain link fence and once again Minos opened the high gates. Jamie felt very confident now as he drove by the gates and slowed the car right at the edge of the shipping room door. He looked at his watch. It was two minutes past eight o'clock. He was almost inside the plan. after all the months of research and planning. The metal door began to open electronically and the light from the inside burst into the car. Minos, a small man in a white coat and a Caesar haircut, stood next to the switch on the inside wall. Jamie pulled the car under the warehouse cement. The plant was deserted at this hour, as most of the technical people were in other sections of the building. Minos pushed the button and the doors closed. Jamie watched him in the mirror. Then he shut off the car and stepped outside. Where is everyone? He wanted to know as he walked over to Minos. "'Nobody's in this area at this time of day. "'That's why I suggested you come here.' "'What about my father? "'Has he been called or been out here?' "'Don't be nervous,' said Minos as he shook his head. "'Your father makes a daily inspection of the plant. "'He made such an inspection this morning at 10 a.m. "'Now don't be nervous, Jamie. "'I assure you, we are the only ones in this sector of the plant.' "'Very well. I'm ready to go, Minos.' I want to make this visit short and sweet. Then let's go upstairs to the EMR, Environmental Maintenance Room. You've studied the plans very well. I have, however, programmed the computers, and they're ready to go as per instructions, he said as they walked across the warehouse. Through the tiers of pallets, toward a set of stairs at the far end of the side room. Jamie moved at a fast clip, sometimes getting ahead of Minos, then slowing down to allow him to catch up. You certainly are in a hurry. And why the hell shouldn't I be? Asked Jamie as they climbed the steps to the next floor. I've never done anything like this before in my life. Breaking into a plant? (laughs) I've studied these plants up and down, Minos. But I still don't know just what lies ahead. (laughs) In any event, you can trace it better on the readout of the screen of the computer said Minos as they entered a darkened corridor carpeted with a deep red carpet pile. They walked ahead and Minos took out his keys. He unlocked the door marked Environmental Maintenance Room. As he flipped on the overhead fluorescent lights, Jamie quickly closed the outside door and locked it tight. I don't want to take any chances, he said seriously. Minos seemed to be unaffected by Jamie's apprehension and turned slowly toward the computer screen. He activated the system and a blue background filled the monitor. It took another few moments for him to program the proper sequence into the system. But slowly, the white lines, representing the boundaries of the air ducts, appeared on the screen with solid green areas that designated the outer boundaries of the plant. Now, Jamie, as you undoubtedly know, these ducts are specifically called number 43 and 87. They end abruptly in the green areas. There's no logical reason why the... No reason for them to be constructed right in a solid wall. I understand this. That is correct. When you step inside, I can activate the infrared readout. This will give me a virtual display of the temperatures within the duct system. If the area gets over 90 degrees, it will show up on the screen as a red area. Yes, yes, I understand all that. Now get me the walkie-talkie. Very well, said Minos as he reached under the counter and pulled out the radios, handing one to Jamie. Let's check this thing out, said Jamie, pushing the red button on the side. All right, get inside the duck. I want to see that red area as well as hear the walkie-talkie. Sure, I can get inside, replied Minos. He walked casually over to the aluminum grid in the corner of the room. Gently he pulled back the clips and removed it from his housing. Although he was an older man, Minos still retained some agility. He leaped onto the counter and pulled himself over the duck. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, no problem here, but I don't see anything on the screen yet. I'll go a ways down, said Minos, and he pushed himself along the duck. What about now? Good, good, very good, said Jamie. An exact silhouette of Minos's figure appeared on the screen in red, as if observed from above. Okay, get back here. I'm going in, said Jamie into the walkie-talkie. Very stuffy in here, Jamie. Perhaps you should bring some water with you. I can get... I'm going in. Well, at least let me go over it with you on the screen. "'I've gone over it for the last month, Minos. "'I don't want,' he said, hesitating as he unbuttoned and removed his bulky coat. "'I don't want any complications,' he added. "'He crawled up and onto the counter. "'He spun around and hoisted himself into the opening as Minos came out. "'Good luck,' said Minos, descending to the floor. "'Thank you. I'm going to prove that there's something here tonight.' And when I come out, my father will be ruined. Everything will be behind me then and I can start over. Right, right. Goodbye, Minos, he said and he leaned back, his feet disappeared into the duct. He turned over on his belly and crawled as if he were on combat maneuvers. Minos looked down the duct and then scurried back to the computer screen. He could see the image of Jamie's body as relayed by the heat sensors. Jamie was moving down the dock, but his nervousness was evident in his impetuous pursuit of the underground facility. He had moved close to 100 feet before he spoke to Minos on the walkie-talkie. How far am I from the large dock? Not very far, about 20 feet. There will be a baffle plate at the- I see it. Okay, I'm almost there. He crawled the remaining few feet and pushed his way through the movable aluminum baffle plate. A sensor sounded at the computer screen indicating the baffle had changed its position. Jamie stood upright in the larger central duct of the plant. He took out the blueprints, studying them for a short time, and then put them back inside his pocket. He sprinted down the lengthy circular tube. His footsteps echoed loudly, almost to the point where it hurt his ears. Then he passed through another series of baffle plates on both sides of the central duct. Some were open wide with the warm air blowing through, and others were shut tight. All of them had bold black numbers stamped across the aluminum. They were not the numbers he remembered seeing on the blueprints. Minos, can you hear me? I'm having trouble reading you on the screen. What? Where the hell do I go from here? He shouted through his heavy breathing. I cannot tell, insisted Minos. The sensors aren't working like they should be. Oh, isn't that great? I thought you said this was all set. Can't you even see where I am? He asked as he took out his own plans again. You should be about 50 feet from the main doctor. Well, I went the wrong way then, dammit. I should have taken the small connecting tunnel back there. Can you see me yet? No, I'm afraid I cannot see you. You'll have to go it alone. Oh, come on, Minos, my life is at stake and you've screwed this up. I'm going back to that connecting tunnel that I should have taken to begin with. That looks like the right one, he told Minos as he ran back on the tube. The sweat poured down his face and his white turtleneck jersey was soaked. He felt compelled to run toward his destination, being undeterred by the warm air. It was not unlike a jog on the beach in California, but a jog on the beach was something secure. There, there was no one to harm him. Here, he could be in trouble, running toward an unknown factor with a thousand different possibilities. And as he squeezed into the connecting tunnel, he felt the repressed guilt, piercing doubt into his mind. Was it really all right to topple his father from power? As he pushed his way along the smaller tunnel, he convinced himself that he was right because his father was evil. His father had no right doing things that might disturb the fabric of the universe, nor did he have the right to disturb Jamie's fabric for his own well-being. His father must be brought down. Jamie had thought about that very thing for years. It had to be right, it had to be done. Ahead, the tunnel was ending, and he pulled himself through the baffle plate to a larger duct. Minos! Minos! He shouted into the radio. I'm outside the duct on the riverside. He told him, but there was no answer. Minos! Minos! I can hear you, said Minos almost nonchalantly, which seemed to anger Jamie all the more. Just stay next to the walkie-talkie. How far am I from the 87th duct? The computer is still not picking up your image. Well, then fix the damn thing. I'm going straight in there. According to the blueprints, 87 is 30 yards down the circle. This is all very confusing, Minos. I wish you could direct me. I cannot help you at this time. You fool, he sneered as he walked ahead. Why didn't you check this out beforehand? Once again, Minos did not answer. Jamie wiped the sweat from his brow. He double-checked each of the duck numbers on the baffle plates as he passed under them. Since the ducks were continuously crossing each other, he was able to find the infamous 87th duck and move past the baffle plate into a darkened area, lit only by tiny incandescent bulbs every 20 feet. The tunnel was as mysterious as it appeared on the computer, extending some 200 feet beyond the solid green area. It did end, however, at a concrete wall and another baffle plate on the floor. Jamie nudged the plate forward and stared down a ladder on the concrete wall. He very easily could have fallen to his death. I'm at a ladder that extends well below the plant. Minos! Minos! This is good news! I cannot see you. I would advise you coming back here at once. I'm going ahead, said Jamie, lowering himself onto the ladder. In fact, I'm on my way now. I tell you, you're taking a big chance I can't see you, and this is not good. You could be descending into nowhere. That's my problem, isn't it, Minos? He said as he moved down the rungs. Jamie moved closer to his destination. He paced it out slowly, moving down the rungs methodically, and calling out the number of rungs under his breath. The height was astronomical, but he was driven in his state of mind. It meant nothing to him all the way down the ladder and a few minutes later he stepped onto the floor of another duct. Minos, I'm at the bottom. The tunnel is narrow and I'm going ahead, he said rapping on the walkie-talkie. Minos! Minos! Can you hear me? Damn you! The tunnel veered to his right. Jamie started running, sprinting as if he were a runner before a large stadium of onlookers. He'd run only five or six feet when the duct suddenly dipped forward. With no warning, he fell on his stomach, hitting the aluminum with a thud. His head pointed downward, and he was racing in total darkness into the unknown. Minos! Minos! he shouted, grasping onto the walkie-talkie. I'm falling! I'm falling! Like a spacecraft in Earth orbit, he applied pressure with his arms, slowly turning his position until his feet were pointing downward. He lifted his knees toward his head, getting into a crash position and preparing himself for the worst. He was moving so fast that even the slightest obstruction would severely injure him. He hit the baffle plate as the chute ended, crashing through an aluminum grid into a pitch black room. Before he knew what had happened, he was sailing through the air, landing on his shoulder. He tumbled over several times, finally sliding across a slick, waxy surface amazingly he still clutched onto the walkie-talkie and zoomed another 20 feet before coming to a stop his shoulder ached only slightly but he was dazed for a few seconds until he realized he was outside the realms of the official blueprints of the hydro plant his eyes adjusted to the darkness and he thought he saw light but he couldn't be sure he stumbled forward over the smooth floor it had to lead to somewhere as jamie moved forward in the darkness far beneath the plant Minos turned from the red image on the computer screen. He smiled as the door to the room opened and James Pendleton I strode inside with his two associates. Well, good evening, Mr. Pendleton, said Minos as he rose. Where is he? asked Pendleton as he walked toward the screen. I tried to stall him, but he went in there anyway. He's all the way below in the subroom beneath the Terminex. We've got him right where we want him. There's absolutely no way out unless we open the elevator. He has no idea where he is, boasted Minos with a surly grin. Your orders, Mr. Pendleton. I want to go down there myself, said Pendleton as he checked his gun. But Mr. Pendleton, insisted his associate Edgar, surely we can get a security man to bring him up here with us. Wrong, Edgar. I want this myself. He walked over to the computer screen and picked up the walkie-talkie. As they watched his every movement, he left the room and headed down the red carpeted corridor. At the far end was a blue metallic elevator. He opened the door and got inside and the door closed quickly. The car began its descent and Pendleton pushed the button on the walkie-talkie. On the other end of the channel, his son was furiously cursing Minos. Stupid fool, damn you Minos. It's totally dark in here. How am I supposed to find my way out? This whole place is enormous, and it leads to nowhere. I don't understand any of this," said Jamie. Answer me, Minos. Answer me. I will answer you, cracked the voice of James Pendleton I, and Jamie's body sprung into a million goosebumps. His hands began to shake uncontrollably. You have attempted to tread into places that are none of your concern. Jamie was too petrified to even move, and he was poignantly aware that his father had no scruples and would go to any lengths to sustain himself and his financial empire. It only confirmed his deep-seated hatred, and he wanted more than ever to complete his task at the plant, to unseat his father, dislodge him from power. Jamie began waving his arms in the darkness, not sure if he was traveling in circles and desperately looking for a way out. Because, as he ultimately realized, it was one life against another. His father against him. You, Jamie, are a poison to my system. You always have been. And I will remove that poison once and for all. Jamie hurled the walkie-talkie to the floor and it smashed into useless bits of plastic somewhere. He ran, but was lost and confused, in a dark room without end. Panic, however, was getting him nowhere, and he stopped, standing in the emptiness. Almost directly above him, he could hear a gentle hum advancing toward him quickly. It must have been the electronic movement of an elevator. As a crack appeared in the darkness, he could hear the hum, like an elevator stopping only a few yards away from him. He knew what that meant, but he had no way to run. He was backed into a corner in a room without end. The bright light hit his eyes with a sudden sharpness. The elder Pendleton in a brown business suit stood inside the lighted car. He had a gun that was pointed directly at Jamie. Oh, aren't you looking well, Father, considering it's been 14 years. He had a cold, hard realization of being killed and he was ready to accept his fate. His father stepped forward, keeping the gun pointed at his son. He pushed a button on the side door, and the lights of the room came on with a full intensity. Squinting, Jamie could sense the true dimensions of the area. The ceiling was just a few feet above him, and its tiles were painted a brilliant red, extending in all directions as far as he could see. The blue metallic elevator shaft was the only interruption in the space. To the right of the elevator, he could see the duct entrance and the baffle plate. The aluminum grid lay on the floor to his right. He understood now how he had gotten down to this area, but he was at a loss as to exactly where he had fallen. He kept the revolver trained on Jamie. I am never wanted to pass aside something that could be of value. What makes you think that I can be of value to you? Asked Jamie as he felt the tension ease for a second and took a step toward his father's loaded gun. You have done your homework. I could never take that from you, Jamie. You're industrious and have done well on your own accord. I commend you for it. But I also realize that I have put my own interest over what you wanted. Jamie's mind flashed back to their final confrontation. All the indisputable words and divergent interests the sharp jabs to his father's head, and then the immense hatred that would never go away. I'm not sure I'm hearing you correctly. You are, now get in the elevator, he said, waving the gun. At least I live to hear you admit you were wrong, he said as he walked toward the car. Now your conscience is clear, isn't it, father? His father followed him into the elevator, shutting off the lights to the room and quickly closing the door. Then he pushed the button marked Terminix, and the car started to rise. But just for a second, before it came to a gentle stop, his father looked his son squarely in the eye prior to opening the door. My conscience would be clear regardless of what I have done to you. You no doubt have some idea of what I am about to show you. I'm sure you know the theories perhaps better than I. But let me just say, this is a grand design. A revolution that, once perfected, will change the world. And your pocketbook. And my pocketbook. I'm no hypocrite, Jamie. The power invites me, and I grasp for it. Jamie nodded his head. You always said what you thought. I guess I never had to guess where you stood on any issue. His father pushed the button, and the door slowly slid open. Another intense barrage of light wavered from all edges of the visible spectrum and blasted into the tiny car. Jamie looked to his right at first, covering his eyes. As he became acclimated to the light, he was dumbfounded by what he saw and followed his father from Just as the room below extended in all directions, so did this limitless space of swirling light around a circular platform his father called the Terminex. The Terminex was surrounded by an outer guardrail supported by thin plastic connections. Inside the rails were the controlling apparatus of the universal power plant. The consoles formed a broken triangle within the platform's circle, and the elevator was in the center of it all. As they walked into the control section, Jamie, as he looked at the magnitude of it all, could not help think he was in the center of an infinite ocean of light and the Terminex is merely a tiny boat within that sea. This area of space, this vast area of limitless space, began Jamie as he rotated 360 degrees around with his mouth open. This area is where time and space are warped. Am I correct? Yes, yeah, more aptly called the Amenti region. The controls are here, obviously, but the actual instruments must reach under the river and the valley itself said Jamie, walking over to the guardrail and gazing outward. Thousands of miles of circuits and field cores are embedded top and bottom of this carved out space. Under the terminex, but above the subroom, were hundreds of green pipes curved upward to needle-like points about 50 yards from the platform. Osiris converters, or just converters, they take the tool particles and other forms of energy. Yes, I know, they convert them to usable electricity. That is exactly right. The two of them stood like tiny insects in the wake of an unbelievable dimension. I have invested my entire fortune on this endeavor. It's a rather meager price to pay as compared to the potential profits. And you're using the system right now, asked the much impressed Jamie. And there are no hitches. That's hardly true, said his father, lowering the gun slightly. This was the first normal conversation he had ever had with Jamie in close to 20 years. We have had many problems. For instance, the converters were malfunctioning just last month, pushing out too much electricity into the system. The town blacked out for five hours. We put out an official report saying that one of the dynamos had shorted. We had to short one out just because they investigated. And you fooled the inspectors, of course. Of course. We have had problems. Perhaps our biggest headache has been in the NU regions. That's still not totally resolved. I'm not familiar with those regions, confessed Jamie as he kept his eyes on the gun. neo regions, NU for short. These are the overlap regions. Unpredictable. We can warp the space, but the space overlaps with our own space. And you don't know where that space is, if I'm correct. Could be anywhere in the universe. Yes, that is correct. These regions extend geometrically around the valley for almost five miles. For example, 50 feet outside this plant, a ring approximately 10 feet wide extends around the plant. When we turn on the OSIRIS converters we get this thing going, the space will overlap for short periods of time. Subsequently, 500 feet out, there's another region or ring then 5,000 feet out, and so on and so forth. We must take care of this problem because people have reported seeing things, he said as the gun was almost by his side now. And you think I could be of importance to you, Jamie, said Pendleton with choked emotion as he gestured with his hands. You can see that this is no experiment by a mad scientist. I told you I have invested everything in this, and I've kept it secret. We can do so much good and benefit ourselves, of course. Join me in that effort. Work with us. Use your God-given talents to work with us. I'm not competent in that area of science, and you know it, and I certainly don't think you are. Running this plant is taking a larger risk than the people of this town would ever accept. You've made the decision for them. We are not running full time, only from midnight to 4 a.m. And just how many people are working on this project, Father? Right now, what are their backgrounds? Minos, of course, heads the project. Dr. Amenti was his mentor. I met Minos and he never mentioned any of this. Minos is more than competent. He has 12 assistants and 27 subordinate work. Hardly a team of scrutinizers. "'I'd be glad to work with you, Father, if... "'I am gratified that you would. "'If you brought in a team of government personnel "'to review every aspect of this operation here.' "'Never!' cried his father as he turned sour. "'I will not do it! "'They would shut this place down! "'Too much risk! Risk is the name of the game, my friend!' "'I'm amazed, Father!' shouted Jamie, his face growing red. How easily you personally take over the public responsibility for your so-called risk of this operation. Who appointed you to make that decision? Tell me that. Who? The free enterprise system, that's who. It's always worked in the past. Ingenuity and invention must not be stymied by the regulators and the bleeding hearts. Jamie turned toward the Amenti regions as if he were going to ponder the past few minutes of conversation. His father, probably thought he had almost won over his son, faced the controls and gritted his teeth. Jamie saw an opening now and swung his arm against the back of his father's neck. His father collapsed to the floor and the gun slid toward the elevators. Wasting no time, Jamie ran back toward the elevator, picking up the revolver as he raced by. He pushed the button to open the doors. Surely they would be waiting for his father upstairs, so he cocked the gun as he entered the car. He was unsure of what his course of action would be. There were a number of levels on the elevator panel. Rashly, he pushed the one above the Terminex as the door closed and he looked across the platform, the sprawled body of his father. He shook his head, blaming his father for his latest misfortune. The doors closed and the elevator rose, away from the Terminex. The gun was ready to fire at the slightest touch, and Jamie was prepared to use it in order to make his escape from the plan. The car rose for 15 or 20 seconds and the doors opened to a similar room. This room, however, had a blue ceiling and some equipment stored around its almost endless interior. He wondered why the lights were already turned on as he ran from the elevator. To his shock, the elevator doors were closed. His father must have struggled to his feet and summoned the elevator. He would have no chance of escape now they would be looking for him and he would be trapped in this room with no exit the duck grid if he could get back inside the ducks he might just evade them and get to the car instinctively he stepped back and ran for the grid running a few feet up the side of the shaft and catching the aluminum panel he pushed his weight outward and ripped the grid from the side of the shaft hurrying back he rushed the shaft again this time running up the side and pulling himself into the duct. The duct was dipped at a similar angle to the one that ran below. He put his body lengthwise and pressed his fingertips against the metal. It was a slow process, but the duct, because of its proximity to the central duct, soon leveled off. Jamie nuzzled his way along the tube like a frightened hamster. This duct met the central duct about 30 feet ahead, and he pushed his way through the baffle plate, standing up inside the larger duct. He pulled out his blueprints from his pocket. 49, 57, 13, 62, 34. These ducts were the most difficult to locate amidst the thousands of intertwining heating passengers. He traced his former route and then found his place. The ladder was about 50 feet to the rear and it would be a hefty climb. But he had no choice and he ran to the end of the duct, looking up 500 feet toward the upper duct grasped the rung and began to climb. He was very high up when he heard footsteps in the duct below. His eyes were trained on the lower baffle plate, but no one appeared. Perhaps they figured he wouldn't be able to climb the ladder, or maybe they'd appeared any second and start chasing him. His arms ached as he climbed the distance and lifted the baffle plate. Sweating profusely again, he rolled over into the larger duct. He was more than halfway out of the plant now as he ran back along the duct holding the gun outward, but they must have been on to him. Five men appeared up ahead and his eyes opened wide. Shots rang out and blood erupted from the shoulder of his white turtleneck, throwing him to the floor. But he rose instantly. His instinct for survival dampened the temporary pain in his shoulder. Strangely, it was not like the pain he had imagined from being shot. It ached like a persistent bone bruise. He had no time, however, to contemplate semantics and leap through a side baffle plate, ducking from view as more shots echoed throughout the main duct. Hunching over, Jamie lumbered down the side duct, cutting into duct after duct in order to evade his pursuers. The dull ache in Jamie's shoulder was beginning to sting, growing more intense as he ran. As he looked at the bloodstained blueprints, he could see exactly where he was in the system, but he had no intention of showing up at the computer terminal. He checked out the duct numbers for duct number 17, which led directly to the warehouse. It was not far away and he pushed his way through the baffle plates. This duct was not any larger. Crunching his way through, he could see the grid plates some 50 feet ahead, and when he reached it, he paused. The other room of the warehouse and the stairs leading to the offices were visible through the aluminum grid squares. His father would be to his left, and the car and his freedom to his right. He kicked out the grid and put his feet over the edge of the opening. It was 15 feet to the floor, and his shoulder was pulsating in pain, but he had no alternative. Pushing himself over, he fell into the air, impacting against the cement. He sprang to his feet, his ankle bruised, and he limped toward the car. His father had been outwitted, he thought, as he crossed the warehouse. Ahead of him was the door, just yards away, and he could make it to the outside world with the information he had gained from the plant his father would be shut down once and for all. He held his shoulder, making his way up to the door switch and he pounded the door furiously. The door cranked upward and he could feel victory within his grasp as the cold air rushed into the plant. The five men, who he had encountered in the ducks, rounded the corner of the adjacent room. Behind them was his father, Minos, and two associates. Jamie froze, just for a second, as he saw his father's countenance. A volley of shots thundered across the warehouse, all missing Jamie, but splintering the walls to his rear. He fired back and the men dropped to their knees as he raced for the car. A new round of bullets whizzed through the air. This time they hit their intended target. Jamie was thrust back against the green car and his hip erupted in blood. In less than a second, his entire right side of his jaw was blown away from his face, his teeth all surrounded by blood hung in a mass of distorted flesh. Somehow, he had stayed on his feet, but his mind was not functioning properly. He knew he had to get to the car, and he ripped the door open, falling onto the seat. They must have been convinced that he was done. They stood up from their kneeling positions. Jamie, bleeding in torrents from his mouth and hip, turned the key, and the car started. He quickly threw it into reverse and spun backward from the plant. The men turned toward his father, and he heard his father shout out, Shoot the damn fool, he screamed, but Jamie's car was already outside the building. It hit the edge of the chain-link fence at the far end of the parking lot. With all his strength, he pulled himself upward as the men emptied their guns once again. The shots were wild because the car was in the shadows. Jamie put the car into drive and hunched over the steering wheel and fishtailed around the lot. As he neared the open gates, the men reached the warehouse doorway and let loose for a third time. Thin-gauge steel of the rental car became punctured as if it were cardboard. A pellet of lead blasted through the rear window, followed by several more blasts. Then the window was blown away. Jamie's neck became filled with bits of broken glass. They couldn't stop him. He had gotten away. I'm shot. I'm shot. He mumbled over and over and over as the car rolled down toward the bridge. But he had escaped. But his fate was far from promising. His riddled body hunched over and blood pulsed from the open wounds. The bench seat was warm with moist blood and he could feel his clothing sticking to the velour fabric. In this the same car he had been singing songs with his children just hours before. He flirted at the edge of consciousness, just strong enough to keep the car going forward, but too weak to assure himself he could even control it. The icy river was just below him now, as well as the banks of the river road back toward town. Any second he could go careening over the incline and it would be all over. Ahead, the clock tower face was a fuzzy white glow and its precise measurement of time meant nothing to him now. His eyelids were heavy and his face mangled like a remnant of its former pristine shape. Turning the corner, the car skidded and the rear quarter hit the telephone pole. He stepped on the accelerator, miraculously getting back on the road. The center of town and Weissman's apartment was just ahead. Help me! Help me! He yelled, someone! Help me! He moaned out loud, with wailing in an almost incomprehensible sound, and the loss of blood started him shivering. God, help me! He screamed as the car chugged down the final half-mile toward the town. Join us next time for My Other Face by Robert P. Fitton. Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.